0: Welcome to the Sports and Torts Podcast, your go-to podcast for entertaining conversations on sports, law, and business. This podcast is powered by the J Stein Law Firm, a personal injury law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. And now, here is your host, Joshua Stein. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Sports and Torts Party. My name is Joshua Stein from the j Stein Law Firm in Atlanta, Georgia. And look, thanks so much for spending this next hour with us. I was just asked how many of these episodes I've done, and we are actually on episode number 39. Man, time sure does go by fast, we're having some fun. Uh, We're having more fun today, because joining us in the lab are my friends Jeb Butler and Matt Kahn. These two are personal injury attorneys who have their own firm, the newly formed Butler and Kahn. These dudes are currently kicking ass and taking names, and I appreciate them sitting down with us today. So gentlemen, first off, let me give the formal congrats on the new firm. And thank you both very much for being here today. Well, Thanks,
1: man. It's a pleasure.
0: Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I've been looking forward to doing this, sit down and, and talk with you guys, know you all a little bit better, uh, learn about, you know, y'all's firms and your practices. So uh, a lot of people listening will know y'all, of course. Um, but for those that do not, uh, please introduce yourselves, family, where you're from, and then a little bit about your firm and kind of work y'all are doing.
1: I'm uh, Jeb Butler, I'm a native Georgian, grew up in Columbus, Georgia, home of the 2006 Little League World Champions, the Aflac Duck, and the Coca-Cola recipe, although Atlanta often tries to steal the latter for its own. In what order would you rank those accomplishments for Columbus? Uh, definitely, I mean, in the order given, like this is you know a practice thing for me, and I always go that order. Um, you know, another way to describe it for your uh, international um, listeners, is, or I should say, like those not in the state of Georgia, is that Columbus is um, snuggled up about halfway up and down the state, and all the way west, snuggled up against Alabama. Uh, geographically proximate but culturally distinct
0: there you go I yeah. like that <laughs> yeah. I like that now you're a Georgia boy UGA not Auburn right I mean Columbus is right there on the border with Auburn
1: you know what it was late in life when I figured out that it was possible to be something other than a Georgia Bulldog or an Auburn Tiger I like I thought everyone was one of the two and one day I met an Alabama fan and I was like what in the heck is wrong with you and I, I still haven't answered that question but uh, I have learned that, you know, there are other schools out there. But it, It's yeah. funny.
0: So Moses Kim, who's a mutual friend of ours, yes. he, he was on the podcast a little while back, and he grew up in a small town in Alabama, and he gave a similar answer that he didn't know there was a, you could be a fan of either Auburn or Alabama. That was it. Like, you were not given an <laughs> option. Like, in kindergarten, <laughs> in kindergarten, you had to declare your allegiance to one or the other. Right. And uh, he didn't know that, like, there's other schools
1: out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we grow up where we grow up, and, and, and that's our world. So that was mine.
2: How about you, Matt? Yeah, so uh, Matt, my name is Matt Kahn. I, I grew up in Dunwoody where this is being uh, recorded. I could actually see my parents' condo from your window. Um, but, yeah, so I've i hope spent- you are not watching.
0: <laughs> yeah, they should. Sure. Invite your parents on over. They could yeah. out.
2: We could see their, their porch from here. But um, I grew up in Dunwoody, went to law school in Atlanta, college in Atlanta. So uh, pretty much been in Atlanta my whole life. I love this city.
0: Um, Love to practice here. Awesome. Now, people have heard me talk all the time about the kind of cases that I handle as a personal injury lawyer. That's what you guys do, too. Um, So is there a specific type of cases that y'all work on and handle in that personal injury space? I'll let Jeb take this one. He's really uh, an expert in the elevator pitch of what we do. Ooh, I love a good elevator pitch. (laughs)
1: Well, I I would love one, too. I wish that I had one. Um, So typically, Josh, what we say is, you know, it's... It's serious injury or death cases. Period. Full stop. And I find that covers it pretty well when I'm speaking with folks who aren't in the profession. Like obviously you're in the profession, so I would describe it a little differently to you. But if to you know a general audience, you know that's it. If there's a serious injury or someone's dead, we'll take a look at the case. Sometimes there's a case there, and sometimes there ain't. Um, If I'm talking with you know others in our profession like Moses or you. then I try to think a little bit differently about it. And the question becomes not, like, to a later audience, but, like, how can I possibly help, you know, someone um, who also is a PI lawyer and might want someone else in the case? And my answer there is we deal with... Diff- um, uh, hard to deal with corporate defendants. So, you know, if, if a plaintiff's lawyer in the Georgia Trial Law Association, of which are both members, gets in some case and it's a serious injury case against you know, I don't know, a truck company, and it's real clear what happened and why, then there's not much to litigate. And honestly, they probably don't need my help. Uh, But I feel like where our law firm excels is doing the hard work, the long work, the thankless grind that others don't. So my pitch in that capacity becomes – you got it hard to deal with corporate defendant. You don't want to spend the rest five next five years of your life you're, you're dealing gonna, with You're going to sign up for that. Yeah, um, Con will love it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: that's great. So, but, but with that, one of my perceptions of both of y'all. Um, is that you genuinely enjoy the job, enjoy being a lawyer, enjoy doing this type of work. It's like you said, it, the cases that you're working on are not the easy ones. They, they, they require a lot of effort, a lot of time. Am I right that y'all genuinely enjoy doing this work and genuinely are happy being a lawyer?
1: Well, yeah, it's a fun job.
0: Yeah. I, oftentimes I'll go into Jeb's office
2: and tell him, I can't believe we're getting paid to do this. It's, <laughs> you know, we, we have a lot of fun working up cases and talking about cases with each other and just, you know,
0: Love to practice law. Y'all's firm is set up how? In terms of multiple lawyers, you've got paralegals. How have y'all kind of constructed um, the mechanics of the firm?
1: You know, we've got um, sort of two divisions, and Matt and I work in the same one, which has always been kind of like, in my mind, the core identity of the law firm because it's what we've always been. Um, so a direct answer and then a tangent, I guess, if you, if you'll permit it. So there's no
0: rules here. You're you got the microphone. We got time. Oh, let's hear it.
1: Well, we're gonna have a good time, though. Uh, At least I will. So anyway, we got two divisions. You know, we got um, in in Butler Con. We have the Butler division of the firm, which is where Matt and I both work, and that's what basically um, I started doing when I went out on my own at that time with Darren Tobin um, in 2014, and that is um, a small volume of. Big damages cases, you know, people bad, hurt, or dead, and really focusing and digging in on a small number of cases so you can do the best work you can. Uh, We also have the Robbers Division, which is run by Graham Roberts, and he does great work too, but it's a different style of case, right? They tend to be, the cases are, they're serious cases, but, you know, not everybody's got a broke leg or broke arm, most of them aren't dead, so it's that space where people are hurt and they need help, but it isn't what we would call in the business catastrophic. And, you know, that he and um, Emery Rogers and Steph Bowen run, you know, a somewhat higher, not high, but higher volume of cases. Um, so we operate those two divisions. In, in ours, in, in the Butler division, we, we really do, I feel like, what we're wired to do. Um, you know, we'd like to get into the details, into the weeds, and focus on things and achieve perfection. Of course that's unattainable, but you try. So like Matt I'll come to the office and be like, What do you think about this? And we'll go and, like a walk around our <laughs> several walks around the office the little complex where we are, get in our steps for the day, but talk about the case. And about I don't know, sixty percent of the time we'll go for this long walk, discuss everything in depth, and decide to change nothing. Right? <laughs> you can't but do that's a that. process to get there. It's right? the a yeah. process to get there. And if you don't if you don't go through that process, then you're gonna miss great opportunities that do do arise but you can't you can't do that on a case where there isn't significant damages because if you want to do that on every case you can't handle but but so many so that's kind of how we got to where we are and where i think it it fits our personalities which are you know a little bit obsessive
0: what would you say about that matt
1: yeah i completely agree with that we we logged two
2: miles the other day just to give you an idea of how how much walking we do but um yeah, you know, having a small number of cases just allows you to, you know, pour your life into those cases and, you know, become intimately familiar with the facts and the law and meet the families and just really get those relationships, which, you know, I, I have a bunch of friends that are lawyers. My fiance is a lawyer, and you just can't do that when you're handling 30 to 60 cases.
1: Matt, you might talk about, so we have a case in which, um, A 15 year old girl was sustained to like a truly catastrophic brain injury and has a mental age that's, I don't know, quite reduced. And it will be so for the rest of her life. She can't walk, she can't talk, and she, uh, you know, it's unclear whether she ever will do those things again. And Matt spent a couple days with the family recently um, in connection with the making of a day in the life video. You might talk about that. Sure. And like what that means to you on a gut check level.
2: Yeah, so I mean, it, it was a pleasure. And and I got, I spent two full days with this family, you know, from the morning till the evening, just walking through the steps that they take every day to take care of their daughter. And, you know, as you're doing that, you really get to, you know, get to know them. You hear the stories that don't just come out when you spend an hour prepping someone for deposition or going through discovery responses. You really get to know them. And, and by the end of the second day, uh the the father came up to me and, and hugged me and told me that we're family and, and we both cried a little bit and you know you just you can't spend the time doing that in forming those relationships when when you have to you know bill 40 hours a week or you know t- attend to an unmanageable load of cases and i think that you know when you develop that connection with people. It makes you want to fight harder. Like i right now I've got a bracelet on that says uh hashtag Kendall Strong forty three.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. And you're exactly right. I mean yeah. and that connection. The so, there you go. Serious, <laughs> serious talking to us. Um no, you're exactly right. In the Day in the Life video the the, the Ideas to demonstrate to a jury or to a judge or to the insurance company, the defense lawyer, like what they're actually going through and they can actually see it with their own two eyes. Now, as I'm hearing y'all talk, y'all, y'all, y'all are a very good fit for one another. Um, the story of how y'all met, I find very interesting. I always love knowing how, how I'm, I'm, I love connecting people and how people get connected. Matt, I'm going to let you do, give the story of how the two of you guys got together. Sure. So I, I was at a,
2: a, another smaller firm doing business litigation and, and a little personal injury. And, and I love those guys, we, we still keep in touch. But I knew that I wanted to, uh, to do personal injury. I wanted that connection with the families and instead of fighting over money between two companies. And so I made a list of trial lawyers that I admired in Atlanta, and Jeb was on that list. And I asked him to go to lunch one day and we went to uh, this little sushi place right down the street from our office. And uh, it, was, it was a fun time, but it was, like, one of those awkward situations where, you know, I'm basically hinting that I want a job, but I didn't I have
1: the, the balls to say it. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: Jeff's a smart guy. I'm guessing he was picking up what you were putting down. We'll give him a chance to...
1: I mean, I'll have a one-liner. Like, you get an email from some young lawyer with obvious gumption, and it comes from his Gmail. Like, you know what's up. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, so we went to lunch and
2: then, uh, as fate will have it, uh, one of Jeb's associate put in her notice about a month after that lunch. And so Jeb gave me a call and the rest is history. I think I accepted the job the same day he gave me the
1: offer. Yeah, she recommended you, Alyssa huh. Bascom, good person of whom I get along. Um, but she was like, yeah, kind's a good one, you probably should hire him. I was like, all right, I'll do that.
0: <laughs> the other thing you're telling me, Matt, is about the, you know what made you decide to become a lawyer. Um, I find that story fascinating too.
2: Yeah, so you know a lot of people will say you know I, I felt a calling to become a lawyer, and, and I really didn't have the desire to become a lawyer until like almost graduating college. So throughout college, I was delivering mail at Hall Booth, which is a you know pretty well-known insurance defense firm in town. And, uh, you know, I formed connections with all of the lawyers there, many of whom told me repeatedly, do not go to law school. I <laughs> hate my life, but um, I still did. And uh, wait, wait a listen, Matt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I've, I've always had to learn lessons the hard way. Then this one worked out well, I'd say. But um, yeah, so I, you know, spent a lot of time around lawyers. My dad was a lawyer, too. He did mergers and acquisitions, which. Uh, made me not want to have anything to do with the law for most of my life. Uh, but, you know, seeing um, seeing the other lawyers and kind of getting involved in doing some research projects kind of showed me what that could be like. And, and throughout law school, I, I thought I wanted to be a defense lawyer and really kind of fell into it because the only – job offer that I had after law school was a, was a place that ha- handled personal injury cases in part and and that's sort of what really made me
0: fall in love with the profession is those personal injury cases Got it. and Jeb you grew up your dad's a lawyer too obviously right uh well-known you know trial lawyer so you grew up kind of seeing these cases um I mean were, were you old enough to kind of get a perception of the cases he was working on did it kind of frame you and want to go into the law or or what
1: I remember the – and we'll go back and then forward again. So, yeah, I mean, I I knew I had a good idea of what it – of some aspects of it, at least. I I remember um, the first time I ever uh, dreamed about a case. Like, I had not been doing civil work for long, and I'm like, you know – working hard, and, and I started dreaming about my cases and what might be done, and I'm waking up and writing down stuff on the legal pad in the middle of the night, and I'm like, damn, this is crazy. So I, I called my dad, and I'm like, dad, I, I, now I've dreamed about my cases. Like, I'm all in the profession, but now I, it's waking me up and I can't sleep. What am I going to do about this? And he just laughed. Because <laughs> if you do it well it's and you love it, it's it's all-consuming, and so it was for him. I have memories of riding down um, in my dad's truck with him. We'd go hunting and fishing in Stewart County, Georgia, a little bit south of Columbus. And, um, you know, we'd talk about his cases. It was on his mind. He would, it was back in the days of dictaphones. He'd dictate letters to General Motors while we were on, in the car. on the car. I remember one time he was dictating something, and he clicked it off and said, God damn, I can't believe I get paid for this shit. <laughs> <laughs> Start it started again. But, um, you know, I saw I saw him. I knew what he was doing. I also knew he was gone all the time and worked his ass off. And so for a long time, I was like, well, you know, I don't really want to do that. He works constantly. Um, and so for most of my childhood and adolescence and on into the college years, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew it wasn't law. But I changed my mind one day. I was driving. I was living in my truck with my dog at the time, driving on I-10 into Baton Rouge Listen to Seabiscuit on audio tape, as everyone does, you know. And I just got teared up because it was a story of this, like, kind of fat racehorse with a weird gait and a jockey that was too big and this Nouveau Riche owner, all the, you know, patriarchy hated and racehorses. And he just kept smoking everybody and pissing them all off. And I loved it so much. And that, that's kind of what we get to do now. Like, we'll get, and I, I do that from my dad's perspective. I so decided I wanted to do it. I figured I had the aptitude because I can write and I can talk, um, and my sort of analytic style is well suited to this profession. But also wanted to because we get to take these, you know, corporate executives that think they're above the law and these, you know, freaking defense lawyers from these big tower. Fancy law offices and rub their faces in the freaking mud, <laughs> and there's just nothing better. Yeah,
0: no, I, I agree. I agree. Um, you know, my son is 11, and uh, so the name of my firm, J Stein Law Firm, we uh, we sponsor a lot of the local, you know, in, in the, stuff of the community. And one of the big things we do is the Walton High School football team. Mm-hmm. We're sponsoring so. He plays football, and they'll say the fourth quarter. Brought to you by the J Stein Law Firm. Da 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 da. And you know he hears he. <laughs> there you go. And uh, my son's name is Graham, and so he's like, I can't wait till it's the G Stein Law Firm. He's already <laughs> yeah, you because know, he hears he hears me talking about the cases. I'm having the G Stein Law Firm. I'm like, buddy, that's great. I mean, I hope you do. Like, like, like we talked about. Like, I enjoy being a lawyer. I know you guys do. What is your approach to the litigation process that you think is like y'all's differentiator? Um, what what's the sauce that y'all do when you dig into a case to find the missing document or get that witness? What are you looking at when that case comes in the door?
1: i devoted some thought to this, so if it's right with Brother Khan, I'll go. Please do. So, um, I pause. I know I said I thought about it. I was trying to think how to phrase it. I think that there is no special ingredient. I don't think that we figure out a formula that no one else has I don't think anyone's figured out a formula that, that nobody else has I think this, when people claim that it's a bunch of horseshit and I think that's something that the you know gurus and jury consultants and other marketing consultants claim is they figure out something secret and I think that's exceptionally rare and when you hear that claim it's almost always BS uh, I think what we do that's different is that we actually do the stuff everyone says they do and I really mean that. I haven't thought like, a lot about it. There's a lot of lawyers who claim they prepare cases for trial. Most are lying. Um, there are a lot of lawyers who claim to like, really think about their clients and how their lives are changed. And I think most times that's not true. A lot of lawyers who really who claim they spend time thinking about how to make the defense fucking bleed. But I think most times that's not true. And I feel like what we do that's different on a global level is we just actually do the stuff that everyone knows they should and then if you maybe pick go like to more nuts and bolts I'd say it's working witnesses um, I can't we Matt and I have a case now um, involving sexual abuse uh, it's a rape of a uh, young girl at, a, at her workplace and um, in that case and others we've found that our witness work has been so vastly superior to the other side that you just—it's like it's—it's it's bizarre. Uh, cases are made of witnesses. You can't win a trial without evidence. Evidence comes from witnesses. But so many lawyers won't pick up the phone or go see somebody to track somebody down and get talk to takes them. To you know, they them. want to sit behind their desk and bang the keyboard. I suppose that's because it's more billable. But in terms of winning the case, cases made of witnesses, and too many lawyers won't go chase them. Uh, And we will. Let's say you,
2: Matt. Yeah. So I think from like more of a 40,000 foot view, the secret sauce, if you will, is just hard work Um, and which we're able to do because we have that smaller caseload. So I mean, when we get a case, we're just you asked, uh, you know, is our secret sauce the witness work or the brief writing or the deposition taking? And it's all of them. And that's because we just work super hard and put in as much time as necessary. For each of those points of the case and and like Jeb said earlier, you know we're always thinking about our cases sometimes you know Jeb will get a call from me or vice versa seven o'clock in the morning and just be like, "You know, I just got had this amazing idea in the shower, like you've got to hear this, and then we both get excited about it and talk about it and just like being excited and happy to do
0: what you do and doing it hard and well uh is the secret sauce I think Do you have any stories where you found that? that document that the other side was trying to withhold and you got your hands on it, changed the case, or you tracked down that witness that, you know, made everything much more clear for your side? Uh, so I'll share I'll share one uh, story
2: that I have and then one that, that I've seen Jeb do that I found really impressive. But uh, the case that he was just talking about, the sexual assault case, uh, we tracked down a bunch of former employees who were all younger girls and, and so the, the position that the the corporation has taken throughout this case is that they had no reason to suspect that this manager would sexually assault an, another person or another employee. And we found this list of people from just going out and talking to people, and then one person gives you another name and so on and so on, and every single one of them had, had the same thing to say. You know, this guy was creepy. He would touch m- my shoulders. He would make uncomfortable comments about sex. And, you know, now we're in a position where there's just no way that they could win on summary judgment. And, and when they lose summary judgment, we're going to have an amazing case at trial because we have all these witnesses. If there's one or two witnesses, it's questionable. But when you have
0: 10 witnesses that all say the exact same thing that's compelling stuff hard to ignore that from yeah you, as you're, as the fact finder jeff how about you i mean can you think of a? Uh, might be hard to, to identify one but a, an instance where doing that work uncovered the aha moment or aha document because you know on tv people love the shows and it's the you know the smoking gun is every case but that's not necessarily true in all of ours
1: I got a bunch of them. I think Matt wanted to tell one more, and I I only am gracious about that because I think it might have been about me.
0: Uh, (laughs) You want to sit back and listen? uh, Matt, Matt, we're turning back to you so Jeff can sit back and listen. Um, Sure. So this this is a –
2: actually, you know what? Uh, Probably shouldn't tell this
1: story. Uh, That's fine. Matt gives the the T timeout sign. (laughs) All right, let's, from sports. let's
0: do a pause for a no, second. No, it's
1: fine. It's no, fine. No, I was going to say just let it roll with us making fun of each other for saying something we can't or starting something we can't. I think we're all right. Ain't nothing on the record we can't say. Um, yeah, so, you know um, – like, like, like so many uh, uh, males, I spend you know, a good bit of time reflecting upon my own greatness and skill set. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and so I've come to think that there's some areas in which I have like, some native talent, but witness work is not among them. I think you know if you talk with a bunch of folks who do what we do, most of us will claim to be like gifted orators and trial lawyers. I think I'm actually pretty good at that. Uh, what I'm best at is writing. That's not a particularly stylish thing to say. It just happens to be true. And I have almost, I, have, I, I think, few Native gifts in the world of Witness work. So that makes me like proud to be able to become good at it because it, it was all work and not like just the expression of Native talent. Um, there's a bunch of cases that we blew wide ass open through Witness work. Um, one, I can tell because there ain't no confidentiality. We had a... Uh, me and brother Matt Stoddard had a um, a case involving negative security. I had some of mine because Matt and I were talking about it earlier today, where a 15-year-old boy was shot and killed at apartment complex. So uh, we went down there, me and Stodd, and just started, like, went to the apartment complex, and we stick out a little bit. It's not the part of town where folks normally talk like me go, uh, but... We walk around, shake hands, say, hello, how you doing? I represent the family of Jalen Maddox. You know, can you tell me what happened? And if you're just honest and genuine, people will talk to you. And if you encourage them to tell the truth, they'll sign statements for you, as long as you're being straight about it, and I always am. So we blew that case open. We had um, it was a negligent security case. Josh, as you well know, what that means is, we have to show that the apartment complex where this boy was shot and killed um, hadn't taken reasonable security precautions. They knew there was a crime problem. They knew there were gangs active on the, on, in the area. And they just didn't do anything about it. They just left their paying tenants out to dry. And the predictable result was there's a, a attempt to rob somebody and and medics get shot. So you just go around and talk to folks. And by the end of that case, we had, I don't know, a half dozen Uh, affidavits that is sworn written testimony from former employees saying there was obviously a crime problem i told the owner there was a crime problem. they knew it they did nothing about it i said please fix it um but yet the affidavits would say you know they did nothing Uh, they cut money to security so they weren't paying the security guards we had their former security guards talking about how their checks were bouncing. You know, like, how are you going to secure a place if you ain't paying the guards? But you
0: better believe they were collecting every penny of rent from the tenants.
1: Yeah, you and, bet. And making
0: it, sure that that profit was where it needs to be.
1: That in Section 8. My favorite of them, me and I think Alyssa was with me at this time. We went and sat in this, like, the lawnmower repair garage at some new apartment complex where this dude, with this former employee was then working and talked with him. And we learned, and he signed an affidavit to the effect that... Um, <laughs> Not only did they know there were drug deals going down on this apartment complex, which obviously brings in crime, but the security guards were taking half. <laughs> yeah,
0: they're all like they are the getting the cut. Yeah. So,
1: Unbelievable. You know, it's awful.
0: It's awful. So the other side of the witness work in the case is when you get to depose the high-ranking corporate officials from, you know, you mentioned GM earlier, department complex. And I've heard y'all, y'all talk before about – Putting, you know, framing the questioning in a way where there's really no good answer for them, like asking the unanswerable question. Um, and that comes from preparing and understanding. Matt, how do you, or Jeb, how do you look at like attending a deposition and setting it up to where you're asking the questions that there's just no good answer for?
1: If Matt will let me, I'll go first, but be yeah. brief. Because it, it's that same case. Um, you know, it takes a lot of thought, like a shitload of thought. I'll spend, you know, 12 or 15 hours getting ready for a deposition is going to run 40 minutes. And the witness is going to look like a pincushion at the end because they're going to be screwed, and just poked so many times. But, um, you know, an example, you got to just think about what the gut level, non legal truth of the case is. In that case I was just describing, where there's inadequate security and security is taken half on drug deals. Um, we had a bunch of pictures of gang tagging and stuff on the, on the premises, on the property. And I asked, eventually asked the property owner, or the, the guy who was supposed to be providing security, the head of that company, uh, what message does it send to criminals when there's gang tagging all over the place um, and crime constantly occurring? <laughs> he was like, what message does it send to the, to, to the criminals of the community? I was like, yeah. He goes, well, you're a sitting duck. There you go. I couldn't believe it. But, like, that was the truth. That was it. And it just yeah. tumbled out. But there's no good answer to that. Had he denied it, you know, there's no good answer. Um, so I, I think it's just a lot of work, I suppose, is the boring, direct response to your How question. about
0: you, Matt? How do you look at framing the questions to kind of put the deponent in a place where he, he or she can't get out from a
2: Sure. From it? So I, yeah, I agree with Jeb in that, you know, it takes a lot of work to get ready. Most Most of the times when we go into a deposition of a higher-up in a company or, you know, a governmental entity – you know, we know everything that they're going to say. And so it really doesn't matter very much what they say. Uh, a lot of the times it's just, you know, they either deny something that they ought not deny, or if we get lucky, they'll tell the truth and then that sinks their case. So um, I think both of our sort of deposition styles are kind of keeping short and
0: tight and to the point. Um, As opposed to the deposition I sat in yesterday from a defense lawyer from a firm that, y'all know, who had a 35-page outline that, by God, she was going to ask every single question off of that outline, right? Because that's what they're supposed to do. Got to build those hours. to it, got to do it, as opposed to just getting in, getting out. That's what I've learned a lot over the years. I used to be very long-winded with, with witnesses at trial, with arguments, like with briefs. Like, I've worked very hard to try to shorten things. Sounds like you do the same. I mean, 40 minutes for a key witness is, is all you need. You know, you don't need to do it. You don't need to ask questions for the sake of asking questions
1: yeah I think that's right. I think that more and more uh, the latest defense lawyer well, so many witnesses now tend to show up and claim to know nothing, or they just will not answer questions and I guess that works if someone's taken to discovery depot, but if we get if we get a really good witness, then often I'll take it and tend to play it at trial, and um, you have to learn that if you're going to ask a basic question and the witness is going to evade it, that is, it can't get better for you. We'll have witnesses, and I'll be like, I'll just line up. We'll say, you know, this happened, and y'all, your company did this, and then ask. we'll get to, like, the punchline, like, someone was killed. We'll be like, and I'll say something like, is that bad?
0: <laughs> and I don't mean to laugh, your, but I mean.
1: No, the defense lawyer, they'll often chuckle like yeah, that. They'll be yeah. like, ha, 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 ha objection vague i'm like what's vague about that yeah what's vague yeah it's, and it's, it's, it's three words and I'm like i'll ask you again is that bad and the witness is like well i can't answer well the jury can damn sure answer they know what the answer is and then i'll break it down and be like you know is it bad that someone at your company is driving a truck where the brakes are shit or i guess do will say shit because it's depot, where the brakes are obviously worn and in need of repair and they'll be like Oh, and they dance around. And the more they dance and evade, the better it, the better is, it is. Because it used to infuriate me when I was younger, And now I know, nah, I should rejoice because it will infuriate Funny It's funny, jury you, say, it's funny jury. you say
0: that. I gave myself a pep talk before every deposition about that because it used to infuriate me too. And I just couldn't like wrap my mind around the fact that this person is refusing to be straight with me. Yes, And it would, it would just bother me to my core. Yeah. And I'd raise my voice and I'd get com- combative. I'd tell myself every time, I'm like, That's how they're going to be. Do what you just said, which is just know that at the end of the day it's going to be worse for them and let them hang themselves because the question is all that really matters. A lot of times the jury knows what the answer is supposed to be. Let them fight it. That's good stuff, guys. Y'all mentioned a couple of specific cases that you've worked on, but one case we haven't talked about is a case that I'm really interested in that y'all just resolved. Um, An incredibly tragic case involved a, a, a young man on a motorcycle. Um, Y'all did unbelievable work on that case. Matt, kind of explain, introduce the case. To the extent y'all are comfortable, I mean, I, you know, I don't know what can and can't be talked about, but to the extent you're comfortable, you know, kind of outline what that case is, what happened and how, sure. it, how it ended up. So we, we represented the family of a 27-year-old
2: kid who was on a motorcycle on his way home from a dinner with his girlfriend, and they were stopped in the intersection. The motorcycle stalled, and then a minivan Hit them from the rear, going about 40 miles an hour, and launched them both into the separate directions in the roadway. Um, the girlfriend, ended, she you know, she suffered serious injuries, but she ultimately made a full recovery. But the boyfriend, our client, uh, was run over by a hit-and-run driver, and he he, he suffered you know catastrophic brain injuries, and he, he's going to require 24/7 care for the rest of his life. Um, so we're dealing with A difficult but tragic but difficult set of facts to to approach because we've got you know an an unidentified hit and run driver which is going to present serious apportionment problems at trial and uh some contributory negligence um or allegations of it our uh, client's motorcycle had a a very small aftermarket tail light that was too low to the ground and so in the police report uh it had made a comment about it being illegally low so you know we had a, a lot of hurdles
1: which to be yeah. fair it was
2: yeah right right <laughs> so we you know we had a, a lot of hurdles and um, we you know w- with any case of this magnitude we you know sh- want to get our experts in order and so we, we had a conversation with a, a an accident reconstructionist that we work with on some cases and basically he told he told us that the case was a loser, that,
0: you know. I'm gonna stop you right yeah, there. Yeah, sure. Because um, when you get a case like that where there's, you know, an argument about what happened, and, and we always hire an expert, an accident reconstructionist, who can kind of put the pieces back together and, and give a scientific kind of answers to why a wreck happened. Um, you, know, you want that to come back on your side, right? You want the, the accident recon guy to say, well, this happened because of these reasons, um, and your guy did nothing wrong, whatever the case may be. But the first person you spoke with or y'all spoke with didn't have that opinion. Is that right? That's right. And, and a lot of folks would take that and be like, you know, tough case. We tried. We hired this person, but the facts just weren't here. So y'all didn't, y'all didn't accept that, right?
1: I mean, that's right. I'm buttoning. in. I'm gonna let Matt continue. But what I think sometimes people may not realize is you still got to pay them. So we've just paid this dude hundreds of dollars per hour to analyze the case, only to come back and be like, "Now nah, you're going to lose. We're like, well, thanks a lot, bro. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that's exactly right. Yeah. Because your your firm is investing in this case, hiring the experts to, to give you the answers. Whether the answers are right or wrong or good or bad, you still owe the money, like you said. So what what is the conversation among in, in the firm when – first thing comes back and he's like sorry guys no case
2: yeah so i mean we definitely wanted a second opinion uh but when with the second opinion from an, another accident reconstructionist was y'all have a loser you know then then there's there was some internal debate about you know whether this was the case um you know we we kind of we went on our walks we probably walked 10 miles talking about it and and decided that that we were going to just keep after it Um, and it was actually pretty fortuitous how we ended up finding our accident reconstructionist jeb and i had a deposition in a different case with an accident reconstructionist and the uh, defense lawyers like unilaterally canceled it while our expert was there already buttoned up and ready to go and he was like, "Well, I'm here for an hour. Like, do all want to talk about any cases?" Oh, and, wow. and we we ran the idea by him. We kind of talked, like, went through the case with him, and he, and he said he'd dig in. And and he was the expert that we ended up going all the way with, and it worked out, obviously.
1: <laughs> yeah, he was the fifth yeah. one. <laughs> so <laughs> we had I, about. I thought
0: it was fifth, and we yeah. you just talked about two. Um, so let's let's like frame this again. I mean, you've had four people that are. I'm assuming y'all looked at very credentialed folks, right? Like, you're not going to waste your time if they're not. You would know all their names. Yeah, people listening would know all their names. And, yeah, you know, their feedback to you was not good. And then you, you find yourself in a deposition in another case with, a, with an hour to basically spend. And there comes the guy, a g- girl, I don't know, um, that was able to look at it in a way that just made a different set of sense. I mean, what was it that was different with that person's approach versus the first four? Or is it a different way of y'all looking at it?
1: I think he was hungry. I mean, that's it, right? It, it's, I feel like we can be candid about it. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, Josh, when you were a, a cub lawyer just out on your own, right? You don't have no cases, and your wife's looking at you like, you're going to support this family or not? You know, you're going to take a flyer on a case that's a little risky because you need to. And I feel like that's what happened here. We ended up working with a fellow who um, is smart as hell and a great reconstructionist. He was right about everything he said. But, you know, he was in a professional position to where he had a lot of experience but needed to make his own name. So, he's willing to take a chance on a case that the established, well-credentialed, well-known people that we had used up to that point may not have been.
0: So, what happens next? I mean, you're client. I mean, you mentioned the injuries. The injuries were, were life-changing. Um, you now have this, this expert that's going to help, you know, support the theory that y'all knew was right. What do you do next?
2: Sure. So, we had a whole team of experts so that was only one piece of it we also needed a, because it was a nighttime collision so we needed a human factors expert um and we we were facing the same problems everybody we were speaking to was telling us there's nothing that anybody could do to avoid this collision and i think uh jeb correct me if i'm wrong but i think we spoke to four Human factors experts. Before we for for, the, for, for those know. listening,
0: explain a little bit about what the the concept of human factors is. I don't know if you want to or yeah, I can
1: do this because I personally <laughs> <first> <laughs> fascinating. I mean, <laughs> the I, first <laughs> time I learned about this field was from from uh, well, she has ascended to the bench and perhaps would want her name associated with my scurrilous stories, so I'll leave it out. But my boss at the time was like, we need a human factors expert. Jim, this whole field's kind of made up, but we're going to pretend. Go find one. Like, all right. Human factors is like they take the, the stimuli, that is, like, the things that we see or hear, smell, I guess, and then assess, like, what range of human reactions to them are appropriate. So as applied to this case where we have a motorcycle sitting stalled out at a traffic light in Cobb County at night, you know, and someone rear ends it. The question is, what what did the what did the at fault driver, the driver of the minivan, see, and what was the range of appropriate responses, and how does that compare to the actual response? So that'd be a human factors expert. You take the factors and figure out how a human is supposed to respond. Got it.
0: Took four four of
2: those to get to one. Mm-hmm. So we finally we got a guy who actually met through my fiance, who is a a lawyer in Macon, a plaintiff's lawyer in Macon, and had been on the other side of this human factors expert, who is a defense expert. And so we'd assembled the team of the accident reconstructionist and the human factors expert, and a a photography expert. And we did a full-scale reconstruction of, of what happened. And it was really like, our main theory of liability really developed on the street at nine 30 at night when our photography expert was like, man, those are some foggy
0: headlights. And we're like, wait a second. What what were the headlights like on the, did did I, did I read at some point, y'all tell me at some point that y'all purchased a similar car? Oh yeah. Yeah, So, so so, so you're (laughs) you're recreating it I mean, I mean <laughs> I I'll, believe I'll, it was a couple of them, Yeah,
1: we, we ended up owning a small fleet.
0: Yeah. We, so, so, we, so that's another layer, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're going out and you're, you're, you're going on an auto trader, I don't know, to find a 2000 whatever Dodge Caravan, mm-hmm. and you go buy one. Is that like like a crash test dummy type of a concept where you're just going to really redo the whole thing and you want the actual vehicle there to make it that much more real?
2: Yeah, so this was my first time doing one of these, so I I was there at, pretty much at every stop and we bought a minivan it was a toyota sienna and we bought a harley davidson so we're the proud owners of a motorcycle now um and we went out <laughs> Wait,
1: i thought you told me you sold that damn thing <laughs> but uh <laughs> we,
2: we went out to the scene we had we had the police close the road down and we didn't actually like re-perform the crash but we you know had them at position, in the positions that our reconstructionist uh had determined were accurate and then just took pictures at each point to show what the driver would have seen and ultimately we ended up using the, the foggy headlights that were on the actual minivan and then cleaned them with like a five dollar cleaning kit off of amazon
0: and it just completely changed the numbers M- making the argument that that was the simplest fix right exactly. that you, that you could, with just something like this this could have been avoided. Yeah, they would five, have seen. Yeah. Okay. That, see, that, that that's.
1: <laughs> we ended up shutting down PDK, right? We did that too. That was, so that was the second time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm going to ask the dumb question about, you know, you were asked, like, what's human factors? How do you shut down an airport? How do you shut down a road in Cobb County?
1: <laughs> well, I usually don't. I mean, if it was left to me, I'd have like a handkerchief and I'd be waving it to people. But you get in touch with law enforcement. Experts can help with that. Our, our experts have done this before. So they'll get in touch with law enforcement. Ideally, you have someone who has good connections there and they're like, hey, you know, good buddy, old pal, you mind shutting down the road for an hour or two so I can do a test? They'll be like, God damn it. All right, I'll do that for you. And the same at PDK. I mean, Peachtree closes at night because the residents don't like the noise. I fly in and out there. Sometimes I do some flying. Um, But they've got a really long runway, and so it's an excellent place to do, you know, visual testing. And so we had to do, you know, maybe a couple runs at this um, to to get it right. I I guess, like, if we want to circle back for a second to – Big picture. I'll shut up if you want me
0: to. No, no, no. I mean, I was going to just ask the time frame. All this is going on. Like, how long in in real time? But you circle back wherever you want. I told you, there's no rules. You got a microphone. Go for
1: it. Shit, I forgot. All right. Um, I mean, the the big picture. I think in the case like like this is that like if you're if you're if, you're, if you if we get to like go back to matt and me in the moment your back's kind of against a wall i mean you have got a family that desperately needs help you've got a 27 year old who's going to have to have care the rest of his life you have really caring parents but now they can't do their jobs like they used to could because they're having to spend so much time caring for their son and they know they know that they're gonna they will pass away at some point and they're likely to predecease their son. And who's going to care for him when they are gone? There's no good answer to that. I think every parent knows what a gnawing uncertainty that has to be. Like, the best case is that a sibling of our injured plaintiff could take care of him, but then you you essentially use up another life. I mean, he had a brother who lives in New York working up there, so he's going to have to move back just to take care of his so, it's a whole host of problems to which there's no good solution unless Khan and I can cook up some damn theory
0: to win a freaking the lawsuit. At every step, and right? so,
1: here we are on our fifth recon expert, our fourth human factors being like, go shut down the airport again and take more pictures. And, and that's how you end up there.
0: Good for y'all for doing it because how many folks wouldn't have? Right. I mean, how many people after the second or the third or the first? Uh, and the other side of this is experts. I imagine y'all had like life care plans put together and projections about costs for future care. Right. Um, so, I mean, how, how'd that come together?
2: Yeah. So we, um, we there, you know, we called a life care planner to, uh, you know, do the initial assessment of all of the care that our client would need for the rest of his life.
1: So a life care planner.
2: Yeah, so, so a life care, you know, life care planner is someone usually in the, you know, the medical field who will look at a person's injuries and sort of just map out everything they'll need from treatment to you know, supplies from the drugstore. And, and so we hired someone who would look at our, at our client's needs and sort of just create a game plan of, of what he would need for the rest of his life. Uh, then we hired an economist who, uh, he, he's a great guy. He actually teaches uh, accounting and finance at Georgia State, and he took that life care plan and then assigned a dollar value to each of the, you know, the points like the medical care, the supplies they would need, the uh, the value of the household services that could no longer be contributed. Uh, the lost wages. You know, we've got a 27-year-old kid who's never going to work again. That's a lifetime of of wages,
0: um, and so that really was the damages component. Uh, so you put all this together, and this case did not go to trial. This was a case that was settled. Um, I don't believe the terms were confidential in terms of the amount. Is that right? right. We we able to talk about kind of the financial side of it because um, it was an incredible result. So. How'd this thing end? Sure. So the, the final
2: settlement was for $45 million, um, which the family really needed. You know, people hear $45 million, and they think, like, oh, that's, that's great. But they, they needed every penny of, of what they got. Um, you know, they needed to redo the house so they could bathe their son. They needed a vehicle that they could put their son in to take they they love to go camping and so they needed a vehicle that they could load the wheelchair up and and have him be comfortable and take him camping Um, and so you know this this amount was just it's security for them you know they know that they'll be able to take care of their son for the rest of his life and
0: that when they pass away someone else will be able to take care of it. the financial the finances will be there to to do what's needed jeb when that moment hits and the case is resolved and you're able to report to the family that the situation they found themselves in with no good answer at least y'all were able to bring them an answer for the security of of, of his health and well-being the rest of his life financially speaking at least what does that feel like
1: we have uh our is blessed to have some wonderful paralegals and one of them is uh, is melody anderson who um been with us not that long, but my God, she has just such a wonderful sense of empathy. So we hauled her up there. We, you know, Matt called up and, and told our client that we had, we had some news and if they don't mind, we're going to come, you know, sit down with them. So we drove up to um, where they lived in Canton and uh, sat down and, and told them the news. And it's a pretty damn special moment. They just uh, to see, to be able, I don't know to be able to be there uh, when that burden lifts, right? Because, like, some of the therapy therapies, things that a person like this needs, the insurance ain't going to cover that. You know, and so there's just this giant unmet need, and for that to lift is wonderful. To be totally candid about it, I go back in my mind, and I wonder in retrospect, should we have gone in person? Or should we have let that, first moment be with um, our clients.
0: You mean to tell them about the, the settlement? Yeah,
1: like, you know, I, I, I'm, like, selfishly glad that we were there for the moment, because I ain't ever gonna forget it. I know Matt's not, and I know Melody's not. You know, I think it meant a hell of a lot to her. And so I'm selfishly glad we were there, but in retrospect, like, that's a big deal. Like, imagine just any family unit, and you have this one freaking searing problem. That invades every part of your life. You know the parents can't go out to dinner anymore because they don't. Someone's got to be there to care for their son. And is it going to affect the other siblings' life? And what's going to happen? And all these things. And when that, when that, when you can, when you have the blessing of being able to alleviate that thing and provide at least future care, so that things don't get worse. Um, it's special, and I'm glad we could share that moment with them. But I sometimes wonder should we have just emailed them and let the moment be with just them instead of freaking sit intruding in their room? I think we're all right. I mean, they loved us and they're appreciative. And, and I don't, I, they've never raised this problem. I not even raised with Matt. I just I've been thinking about it. But um, it was a real special moment for me and a great moment for the family.
0: Well, congratulations to y'all. Um, I knew a little bit about the case, but hearing kind of more of the details today makes me that much more appreciative of the job y'all did for the family. And I think that that my kind of, uh, you know, my takeaway is that people see in the news, in the headline, you know, a big verdict or a big settlement, and they're like, oh, that's that must be so great to be a plaintiff's lawyer or the family that gets this kind of money, and they don't really know what goes into it. They don't know all the blood, sweat, and tears. They don't understand the injuries that have to come along to have that kind of a settlement her verdict and the family would trade all day long to, to not have gone through what they're going through for it so i think that it's important to shed some light on the actual boots on the ground work that goes into something like that which you guys did so thank you for sharing it
1: well not only the work but the loss you hear you know the insurance lobby um in the corporate america will, will call a result like that you know quote jackpot justice end quote or the litigation lottery or other such nonsense but if you actually live it and you meet the people who you know who 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 are involved in settlements or verdicts of that magnitude like let me tell you something bro they didn't win the lottery no and that's a hard hard life to live
0: right right and they'll throw out terms like nuclear verdict and things like that completely ignoring the underlying facts of what it was that led to it right yeah
1: right this is the like insurance company that Rakes in money year after year. We're all paying premiums still. But when they actually have to pay something and take care of their insured, oh my God, at the whining. You know what? I don't give a damn. I'm helping my client.
0: Well, very, yeah, again, thank you all for doing that and explaining that. And I want to spend just a real quick moment on marketing. We're almost done, but y'all guys take a good approach to it. I don't know you that what I like about what y'all do is that. It seems very authentic in terms of y'all's personalities or what's driving, videos you put out, talks you do, papers you write. And that we talked about this. It's not like the buttoned-up suspenders that we've looked at in the past. So do y'all make a an effort to come across, at least the way that I'm perceiving your firm? So Jeb's the marketing
2: expert here. I'm going to let him take this one.
1: Well, Josh, if I could come across better, I would. <laughs> it's just all I got, you know? <laughs> like, That's just who he is. I don't really – if I could come across as uh, more debonair uh, or suave or suave and deboner, as some people like to say it, I probably would do that. It just isn't really within the realm of possibility. Well,
0: I think that what that shows is just be yourself, right? Whatever yourself is. Don't try to be something that you're not.
1: I mean, as so often happens with decisions in life and law, no one said it better, better than the Blakely Sage, that is Bill Stone of Blakely, Georgia, who always says, quote, be yourself unless yourself is an asshole. Yeah, Those unless, quotes. Your,
0: <laughs> unless, your, unless yourself sucks. Speaking of being yourself, Matt, uh, you're a music guy. You're in a band. Um, I'm going to embarrass you here for a minute, but you do you do some firm jingles with your guitar and you sing a little bit. Um i think they're awesome you take basically a minute 45 seconds and you sing a little song uh i'm gonna put you on the spot man i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you if you do at least a verse or two of one of these <laughs> jingles one of these jingles
2: all right wow. um, it, it rip all right here i'm gonna i'm gonna get an instrumental going for you
1: will this be the first time you've had karaoke on sports and Torts?
0: so i've had my brother play the banjo and the guitar Oh. I had Joe Murphy just last week do his harmonica. You know, Joe, mediator, you've used him before. He does wow. harmonica. Um, I've had my dad's band play a couple songs. So I like to, you know, sports, torts, and music we can do.
1: So if Matt and I be my had first done our j- research, we would have seen this coming, basically. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this will be the first jingle, though. So I'm
1: excited about this. Hey, what I admire about them, as Matt pulls this up, is that, is that they're like, he describes them as jingles. Like, I feel like too often... Um, those who create art or really anything, overhype it. You know, they want to describe it and stuff. But Khan, he's like, I'm going to rip a jingle. I'm going to call it a jingle. We're putting a line as a jingle. <laughs> if you don't like fucking jingles,
0: While, 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 while he's pulling up the audio, because I didn't give him a good heads up, I got to ask you a question, Jeb, about, about this flock of chickens you keep in your backyard.
1: <laughs>
0: What's that all about?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you know... Um, I grew up on a farm There were We had When I was a boy We had chickens And we had pigs And we had raccoon hunting dogs And bird dogs And squirrel dogs And the whole thing And it was quite fun um, Now I live in this damn city But really the way it came about I can circle back again To my good friend Brother Matthew Brett Stodder With whom I lived In this house On Hall Avenue Shortly after law school We were both lawyers and, But we were You know Doing fun things Like playing beer pong In the front yard And Hoping the cops didn't show up and but they did you know sometimes the police would arrive and allege alleged noise violations so this led Matthew uh, a good lawyer to look up the noise ordinance in the Atlanta code Which happened to be right next to the animal ordinance? So he came home one day from work where he should have been working on you know Pete Law's cases at the time and um, I said Jim I have something to tell you about the ordinance. One, we should always keep something out to make it look like a cooking fire. But number two, we're allowed to have up to 10 chickens.
0: <laughs> Anecdotally, said, we can
1: have 10 chickens. Yeah, yeah. And and, and it was pretty soon so you after. So took, you took
0: that as a suggestion to go get 10 chickens?
1: I'm sure that's how he meant it. I mean, he's a smart dude. He knows me quite well. It wasn't long before the chickens were delivered. So my, my urban chicken farming history, uh, you know, it's got some roots. Um and so I, I, I'm i happy talking about chickens, but I, I feel like perhaps it is jingle time. All right. Uh, hey, nothing like
0: killing some airspace about jingles, talking about some backyard chickens. <laughs> so well, well played, sir. All right, Matt, what you got?
2: All right. So if I knew that I was going to be doing this, I, when you told me to bring my guitar, I thought you were joking. Um, but it, it, here we go. All right. And hopefully you don't get a cease and desist letter from Udi and the Blowfish's lawyers here. But the we're the best law firm in town. Ooh. You can look on Google, but we'll always win the crown. Ooh. When you're injured, and it's not your fault. Uh-huh. We'll file a lawsuit and we'll take the
1: ass to court. Take him to court, uh-huh. baby. <laughs> oh, so that makes Darius Rucker Damn, proud. yeah.
0: You can't tell me that doesn't make Darius Rucker proud.
1: If I was Darius, like, yeah, I think I'd be like, that dude, he don't have my talent, but he's trying. I appreciate that.
0: I love it. You're You're, you're a good sport. I appreciate it. Guys, this was so much fun. Thank you all for coming on here today. I think we covered lots of topics. We could be talking for hours and hours and hours, but uh, I appreciate you all sharing everything with us today. I know everybody enjoyed this as much as I did. Um, Y'all's website, your firm, socials, tell people where they can find you if they want to. Hear more jingles or read more about the cases y'all are working on, and just get more ButlerCon in their life.
1: Yeah, man. Well, well, thanks, and I'm sure that everyone would love to hear more from us. And if they do, uh, butlerfirm.com is a good place to start. We didn't update the URL when we went to ButlerCon, and we're also, if you go there, you'll find our links to uh, YouTube, where you can hear more of Matt's freaking awesome music, and also Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, the whole thing. Love it. All right, Matt, how about you?
0: Same same uh same social links? Same social. our, our uh,
2: Instagram is just butler underscore con. And
0: uh it's been a pleasure being here. It's been fun. Love it. Good stuff. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, my pleasure. So in terms of me, uh Law com, you can find what I got going on there, sportsandtors.com for old episodes. There's some episodes you guys need to catch up with. Come on, let's go. Um you can find old episodes when you just search on Apple Podcasts. I've got an Instagram handle, J. Stein, J. Stein Law Firm. I told you I started a TikTok account. We discussed that before the podcast started.
1: Yeah, you're ticking and talking. I'm impressed. I'm ticking
0: and talking. I mean, you That's, got some
1: gray in that hair. Oh, shit, it's a podcast they didn't know. I'm looking <laughs> at your beard. I see some gray in your
0: beard, too. Uh, so shots the, fired.
1: Uh, <laughs> uh, law.father
0: on TikTok, and I'm excited to see y'all's TikTok uh, account come up. Uh, if you know if y'all enjoyed this one, I would suggest go back and listen to Michael Goldberg from a few weeks ago. Another similarly situated, very successful trial lawyer that y'all would enjoy listening to. And um, look, if uh, you liked college football talk, some sports talk, we didn't do that too re- really much today. I mean, I know you guys, Jeb. I know you're a Georgia fan, Matt. I'm not sure Are you a Georgia fan too. Go dogs. Go dogs. <clears throat> um, if y'all want some some dog talk, some college football talk. I've got a weekly podcast called College Football's Last Call with my friends Lawrence Kessler, Jason Gans. We do a 30-minute show just traveling all around the nation. Not traveling around the nation. I wish we were traveling around the nation, but just going around the nation talking about the happenings. So uh, go check that out. As always, everybody, thank you all for listening. Tell a friend, like, comment, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. And until next time, as always, keep chopping.